I saw everyone around me going out to vote and it, it really broke my heart because I wanted to take part in that and make change for our country. But I wasn't able to do anything about that. This is Wu Jung Diana Park. She's talking about the 2020 presidential election. I'm 22 years old. I came here from South Korea when I was around one. So my family came here to just provide a better life for uh, my sister and I. But they overstayed their visas. As an undocumented immigrant, Diana Park cannot vote in presidential elections. And she does not have a clear path to become a citizen either. I don't have the label of citizen, but I definitely feel like I am a citizen. I've been going to public schools, New York public schools, like my entire life. I've been in this country. I've been residing here for over 20 years. I speak English. um, I speak Korean. But um, overall, like, I believe that I'm no different from those that are American citizens. I feel as though I do not reap the benefits of... um, being a person that has resided here for two decades. I don't think I'm any different, and I deserve to have my voice out there. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Most countries, including the United States, prohibit non-citizens like Diana Park from voting in elections. But why? Is there something important about the process of becoming a citizen that makes someone better qualified to vote? Goodness knows many people born in America don't feel as strongly about voting as Diana does. Voter turnout in the U.S. is persistently low compared to many other countries, especially for local elections. Why do many people view voting as something only legal American citizens should get to do, and yet so many of us don't even bother to show up at the polls? If voting is so meaningful, what is the value of restricting it to only some people in a community? There are actually about a dozen cities in the U.S. that let non-citizens vote in local elections. New York City, where Diana Park lives, just became the largest by far. To effectively say to all legal residents, if you live here, you should have a say in how things are run. For Diana Park, the ability to vote isn't just about having a say. It's a signal that she belongs here. In 2020, she felt the sting even more deeply because her younger, American-born sister came of voting age. I felt um, ostracized. I was a little bit jealous, um, to be honest, that my younger sister was able to um, benefit from being a citizen, that I, I can just watch from the sidelines. She did participate in the 2020 elections. Yeah. So what was that like for you then? It was it was hard, um, but I did appreciate that she was exercising her voting power that I wasn't able to. So I definitely appreciated that. Almost like she's carrying the weight of your whole family on her shoulders. Like you got to go speak for the whole park family in this yes, one election. Yes, she literally is. And we are heavy. <laughs> Since she can't vote, Diana has found another medium to make her voice heard. It's poetry. This poem is called I Was Here. It's a poem about the privilege and responsibility Diana's younger sister has because she was born in America and Diana's feelings about being undocumented. My mother clutched me in her arms, cramped bodies huddled for warmth. In the Riverdale apartment of nameless faces, the symbol of our new beginning, the immigrant blood coursing through our veins, my sister's blood inherently different, the gifted one, a Korean child birthed on the soil of my imprinted footprints. My voice faint, careful not to be emboldened, but my body ages and my stifled voice bursts for the undocumented immigrants with their broken English. They choose silence and surrender quietly. Would you like to become a U.S. citizen if there were a way for that to happen? Yes, of course. That's one of my lifelong missions to um, become a citizen. But only immigrants who are in the U.S. legally can apply for citizenship. So that's not an option for Diana right now. 
She does have temporary status to live and work in the U.S. through the DACA program, which was created for people like her who were brought into the country as children. But her yearning to be heard has turned Diana Park into an activist. I think I can do that most with my poetry, my writing, and making sure that undocumented folks know that their voices matter and that they should speak out as much as possible. She works at the Ming Kwan Center for Community Action in Queens, doing outreach to low-income Korean and Asian immigrants. And Park worked on the campaign to get New York's city council to give immigrants the vote. Good afternoon and welcome to the stated meeting of December 9th, 2021. The proposal was to allow all legal residents to vote in future city elections, regardless of citizenship status. And that includes people with temporary legal status through DACA. So a lot was at stake for Diana. I believe that this is a slap in the face to those immigrants who work. And I was holding my breath, honestly. You have to been able to make a commitment to this country. It's taxation with representation. A hundred year definition of citizenship. Let's get it done. Si se puede. I unfortunately uh, wasn't able to be there because I was at school. I was in class. It was a poetry class, ironically. So while she was crafting verses to make her voice heard, she also couldn't resist sneaking glances at her phone for updates on the city council. Don't tell the professor that, though. (laughs) By a vote of 33 in the affirmative, 14 in the negative, and two abstentions, intro 1867A is hereby adopted. Congratulations, Councilmember Rodriguez. I was very excited. I was thrilled. It was like a dream come true. And I just thought, wow, this is actually happening. I was very excited that change is really happening. What what will election day be like for you the next time it comes around? For municipal voting in New York, I think I would be really thrilled to just change the local um, atmosphere, and especially in our communities such as Flushing, where a lot of immigrant and uh, low-income minorities are. They like the atmosphere would change dramatically and we can see change in our communities happen drastically. We can see so much more diversity in our local government and see change in issues such as gentrification and poverty. Do you think that if non-citizens can vote, that they will have less incentive to go through the process to become a citizen? Uh, I think if non-citizens were eligible to vote, they would they would have more incentive to find a way to become a citizen because they would want more more um, of a chance and an opportunity to voice their opinion on a national level. Mm, almost like by by being able to vote in a local election, it'll like wet their appetite <laughs> to want to have a yeah. say in a, in national elections, and to do that, they would need to become a citizen. Yes, it's kind of like an appetizer, you know, like um, the appetizer is so delicious, but we all look forward to the main course. Do you see that happening for yourself? Yes, I certainly do. Because um, once I see that my voice is being heard and I see change in my communities, then I will definitely be more inclined and excited to vote at a national level. If New York City's new law withstands legal challenge, it'll mean more than 800,000 legal immigrants will be eligible to vote in local elections in 2023. Now, that still leaves out an estimated half a million illegal immigrants. My name is Jessica Park. Jessica and Diana Park are not related, but they have a lot in common. Um, I myself am undocumented. I um, came to the United States when I was... Uh, young when I was like fourth grade and um, with my parents. Like Diana, Jessica was born in South Korea and raised in New York City. They're both intelligent young activists working for the Mingkwan Center for Community Action. But a small difference in their stories creates a major divergence. Diana came to the U.S. early enough to qualify for the DACA program. Jessica did not. So come 2023... Diana will be able to vote in New York City elections. Jessica won't. The more I live in the United States right now, the more I see myself as um, sort of like an American citizen, basically. But U.S. law says she is not. 
and even proposed legislation to give DACA recipients like Diana citizenship would leave Jessica out. So long as Jessica stays in this country and nothing changes with immigration law, she has no way to become a citizen, no way to cast her vote, even though she is more informed about what it means to be American than most lifelong citizens because she took AP government in high school. Actually, it was in that class that it first dawned on her, no matter how long she lived here, no matter how American she felt, she'd never really belong. Um, my teacher sort of like brought someone, a visitor, um, and they handed all um, the voter registration forms to all the students. And um, they were just explaining how to fill out the voter registration form. And I was sort of sitting there being like, wow, even though I am, my age is 18, I cannot, I cannot vote. Right now I see people around me who are like who are US citizens and I see them not like going to vote and I'm just like if I had citizenship I would like so I would be so enthusiastic to go vote it's something that I really want to do but I cannot do just because of my status a lot of people in Jessica's situation might just check out of the whole political process why bother to follow issues or get involved in campaigns if you can't vote but not Jessica I realized that um, even even if I am not eligible to vote, it is really important to know that um, like who's going to represent the um, the county that I live in, who's going to represent the city that I live in. You know, so um, I started um, looking into different you know different campaigns, uh, different candidates running for municipal elections, and really just at, like just starting from asking uh, my friends, my peers, um, my family members who are eligible to vote to, you know, um, to ask, like encourage them to register to vote and also like go vote on the day of election. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm still um, continuing that effort. I hope those who are now newly eligible to vote can also vote in behalf of those who still cannot vote, right? So um, there could be, like, for example, there could be a family with a mixed status where um, a child has DACA, but their parents um, are not eligible for DACA, so they um, cannot vote in this new voting measure, but their child can. So then the child can um, sort of hear their parents' concerns and vote um, on behalf of their parents. Have you ever thought about your ability to vote in those terms? How often are we considering the needs of others in the community? Maybe especially those like Jessica who yearn to vote but can't when we head to the polling place on election day or when we opt to stay home instead. Here's Diana Park once more. We want everyone to not take for granted the power that they have and know that there are people that want to vote so dearly but can't. So we have to make sure that people know that they have the power to change the country and the course where we're going. Jessica Park and Woo Jung Diana Park are college students and immigrant justice organizers at the Mingquan Center for Community Action in New York City. What if I told you that immigrants used to have a lot more access to voting in America? Citizenship was not the main criteria for voting in the United States from its founding until 1926. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Is the ultimate measure of belonging in America the right to vote? It can certainly feel like that on Election Day with all the I voted stickers and the social media posts. Being able to vote makes you a member of a club with special status. Maybe you didn't do anything to earn that, but just being in the club means your opinions are assumed to be more valid, your decisions more informed. Over the course of a century, Black people and women in America had to force their way into that club. Blood has been shed over access to the vote. Which is why New York City's decision to give ballots to any legal resident who has lived in the city for at least a month seems radical. But if you know a bit more of American history, it's really not. 40 states 
at some point in time, allowed immigrants to vote, not just in local elections, but also in state and federal elections. And immigrants could also run for office and hold office. Ron Hadick is a political science professor at San Francisco State University. He's done a ton of research on the history of non-citizen voting and wrote a book about it called Democracy for All. Hadick found that the United States actually pioneered the practice of letting new immigrants vote in elections because the founders had a very different idea of citizenship. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish... You know, the preamble for the Constitution is we, the people, right? Um, The Declaration of Independence talks about people, not citizens. Everyone that basically came to the United States uh, early on was sort of automatically on the pathway to citizenship. Um, And there was something that they filled out called the First Papers, which essentially was their declaration to intend to become a citizen. The naturalization process was fast, easy, and cheap. Hadick says it wasn't until 1790 that Congress passed the first law laying out the process to become a naturalized citizen of the United States. And at the time, only free white persons qualified. But when it came to who could vote in elections, citizenship status was irrelevant. What mattered to determine eligibility for voting was one's race, gender, and class. At first, only white men who owned property could vote in elections. White women and poor white men could be citizens, but they couldn't vote. Anyone who wasn't white was out of luck for both citizenship and voting. But as the nation expanded west, Hadick says the founders realized voting could be a useful incentive for new immigrants. Congress and the newly formed states, new territories, used the promise of land and voting to lure newcomers to settle the West. Imagine what those commercials might have sounded like. Are you tired of feeling like you're second class? You made that long journey from your homeland only to be stuck in a dead-end job, beholden to some wealthy elite? Go West, young man. Stake your claim to your very own Northwest homestead. And no matter where you're from or how long you've been in America, you'll be able to vote. Heck, you could even run for office in your new home territory. It's time to find your American dream and make your voice heard. While Western territories were eagerly extending voting to non-citizen immigrants, it wasn't long before political leaders back east started to be wary of it. Going back to the 13 original states, um, New York was one of the first states to roll back immigrant voting, partly because the influx of French radicals fleeing the French Revolution. The Federalist Party, the dominant party in the United States at the time, feared that the French radicals would infect the American public with uh, radical ideas. After the War of 1812, where the British sacked and burnt the White House, Fear of foreign enemies uh, swept the country and um, a number of the other original 13 states rolled back immigrant voting, such Mm -hmm. as Connecticut, Delaware, and a few others. Um, Leading up to the Civil War, uh, the influx of the Irish and Germans who were largely opposed to slavery led southern states to um, outlaw immigrant voting. And after the Civil War... Uh, the Reconstruction restored immigrant voting to the South. So by the 1870s and 1880s, this is the period when immigrant voting is most widely practiced by more than 20 states. But the next 40 years would bring the largest wave of immigrants in America's history. They came mostly from Southern and Eastern Europe. And the tide shifted against non-citizen voting. There was a significant and growing backlash against immigrants. Um, This is a period of time when there was wrenching economic and social change in the United States, uh, moving from a more agrarian to an industrial society, from a more rural to urban society. This is also the time when World War I generated, you know, uh, again, fear of foreign enemies and uh, was another factor. Newcomers that spoke different languages, had different religions, um, were not perceived in the taxonomy of the day as universally white or had politically suspect views. And immigrant voting 
was eliminated state by state during this period of time, ending in 1926 in Arkansas. So when does non-citizen voting come back on the table? The civil rights movement was the main spark for the restoration of immigrant voting. Um, First in community school board elections, New York City was the first place to restore immigrant voting, non-citizen voting in the United States in 1968. New York City schools eventually stopped letting non-citizen parents vote when the independent school boards were disbanded in 2002. But Chicago has been allowing non-citizens to vote on some school issues since the late 80s. And San Francisco implemented non-citizen voting in school board elections in 2018. In fact, those voters appear to have played an important role in a recent recall election for the San Francisco Board of Education. And then there's Maryland. Of the 15 municipalities in the U.S. that allow non-citizens to vote, 11 are in Maryland. Haydick says that is because Maryland's constitution allows cities to make that choice. Unlike some other states like Massachusetts, which uh, there's a number of cities in Massachusetts that have passed laws enfranchising non-citizens in local elections, but they can't implement those laws without state approval. Keep in mind that the U.S. Constitution largely delegates the business of elections to states. And Haydick says the Supreme Court has ruled that states can let non-citizens vote in local elections. So it's really up to whether a state's constitution allows it. Elections for Congress and president are a different matter. Because there was a law passed, again, this is a congressional act signed by the president in 1996, uh, that bans immigrants from voting in federal elections. Is there a common motivation, a common thread of motivation that runs through all 15 of these examples we currently have? You know, the main thing that in my research that I've heard from the advocates is that these are legitimate stakeholders, that they deserve a say, that they're taxpayers, that they work in businesses, that they own businesses, they send their kids to schools. The, the phrase that they often use is, you know, no taxation without representation. They, they hearken back to the American, the cry of the American Revolution. Some people say, you know, immigrant voting is, non-citizen voting is as American as apple pie. It's older than our national pastime, baseball or football. And uh, they're, they're saying, you know, hey, it was good enough for immigrants previously. Why is it not good enough for us now? But then again, America is a different place than it was in the late 1800s. Is extending the vote to non-citizens really the only way for them to belong? I I would accept the criticism that the the votes of non-citizens are, in in a certain sense, suppressed. But there's a cure for that. And that cure for that is to help them become citizens. This is Howard Husick. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. My concern here is not one about uh, a change in the demography of the United States or any of that. Uh, I am, however, a strong believer that the process, the sheer process, the steps that one takes to become a citizen, including the citizenship test, are themselves important preparation for informed voting in a democratic society. And so skipping over the steps through which and by which one becomes a citizen concerns me. And we know it has a value because when people succeed, they celebrate. They have gone through a rite of passage and they cry and they salute the flag. They also swear loyalty to the United States of America and renounce loyalty to other countries. And Husick worries that without making people go through that process before they vote, we could be opening the doors to election interference by other countries. If you only have to reside in New York City for 30 days before you can vote, what's to stop a foreign enemy from sending thousands of its citizens on student or tourist visas to sway an election? Mark Joni, who was a city councilman during the debate, brought up this very concern. This bill doesn't protect New York City or make it fairer. It makes it vulnerable to outside influence. And even if immigrants mean no harm to the country, Husick believes they could unintentionally do harm in their ignorance of how American democracy works. Let's go back to to the founders. 
you know, an informed citizenry in the view of uh, Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, was central to a democracy. That is really important to understand what the issues are, not just to have a voice, but to have an informed voice, because it's that informed voice that disciplines our elected officials, that guides our elected officials, that punishes our elected officials as necessary. That's why Husick thinks the oral test immigrants pass as a part of the citizenship process is so important. These questions are extraordinarily interesting, and they might even be difficult for some of our listeners here. Uh, What are the branches of government? Which of the numerous amendments that do this in the con- of the Constitution uh, address uh, voting rights and who may vote. Essentials, who is the governor of your state? Who is your congressman? Let's be a prepared voter. And part of being a prepared voter is understanding the system that you're casting a ballot in. That seems pretty basic to me. I mean, some of the questions you listed off there, I might be hard-pressed to answer myself, and I'm a I'm a pretty informed citizen, but nobody ever made me take a citizenship test because I was born in this country. So do we have a double standard here where we're we're holding immigrants who were not born in America to a much higher standard in terms of what they have to know in order to be able to vote? Well, perhaps, but at the same time, we have a public education system in this country that has historically included civics education. But the idea is that if you're born in this country, uh, you go through that. And so you've been exposed to it. You are expected, okay, assumed to be knowledgeable about it, but there's, it's not irrational to assume that uh, natural-born citizens, uh, to use that phrase, are aware of our system of government. For those who were born abroad, it, we, it's harder to make that assumption. And so, yes, w- w- we have a test. By that argument, do you think that we should actually have everybody pass a citizenship test? I mean, everyone ought to be able to answer those questions before they can actually vote. Not before voting. It's actually illegal to make someone pass a test in order to vote because literacy exams were used to keep Black people from voting in the Jim Crow South. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 explicitly prohibits any kind of required test before a citizen can register to vote or cast a ballot. Husick's larger concern is that if you let people vote before they become citizens, they'll have no incentive to go through that citizenship process. The people who don't become citizens are harmed. That's what I'm saying. That's where my heart is. It's with them. We want to be inclusive to them. They're harmed because we've drawn back from encouraging citizenship. And so those who have gone through what it takes to become a citizen will look around and say, What did I do that for? I I could have just voted anyhow now. It's demoralizing for them. Mm. So people who've already gone through the process are harmed because we've devalued the effort they made. I do think so. And people who have not gone through the process yet have less of an incentive to bother because now they can vote. It it is less of an incentive, but I'm not framing it in terms of an incentive. They They have a less of an incentive to take advantage of the inclusiveness that is America. You know, let's not frame the citizenship test and the requirement to vote as something that's exclusive. Many, many countries don't permit it under any circumstances. The whole inclusiveness of America is signaled by the fact that anybody who's been here a set period of time can become a citizen. This is an unusual country in that way. It's not an oppressive country. The fact that we, that we have a system to, to facilitate this is a demonstration of our inclusiveness, not our exclusiveness. So allowing non-citizens to vote is a kind of short-term inclusivity that undermines the larger inclusivity of encouraging people to become citizens. I wish I'd said that, but yes. Husick would like to see it become easier and cheaper to become a citizen. So a family of four Hispanic immigrants working entry-level jobs, thousands of dollars to take citizenship tests. Why do we want to make it hard? 
We should make it easy. We should make tutoring widely available through our community colleges and other uh, and nonprofit groups. We should make it easy to study for the test, but not give everybody, just wave them through. He says we might consider making the process faster too, instead of the minimum five years it currently takes. Should it be a two-year waiting period or a three-year waiting period? Sure, let's talk about it. Let's just talk about encouragement, make it a, a public campaign. Part of this gets to me at the question of what is the point of voting uh, in the United States? What do you think it is? I think it's vox populi. It's to give the people a voice. And that we hope that will lead to wise leadership. Uh, we hope it will hold those leaders who are not wise accountable. But the, the most basic reason to enfranchise people is to give them a voice. Absent that voice, the whole system that we rely on could start to topple. Because by allowing citizens to vote, we empower them to feel, I guess, ownership of, of this country. Because what they say matters, because what they think matters, because their views as individuals in a free country matter. And we take those views seriously, and there's a system through which they can express those views. The results can be varied. Could be a wise government, could be a foolish government. But it's their ability to be taken seriously as thinking individuals whose views matter. Everybody matters. Just think about that. Well, only everybody. citizens matter, not everybody. Every Everybody who may vote, their views matter. That's true. Howard Husick is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Noel Husick believes that voting rights must be earned through citizenship. In Tacoma Park, Maryland, all you have to do is live there. And that's been true for nearly three decades. Whether you've lived here a few weeks, whether you've lived here 30 years, everyone who lives here is valued. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. What does it mean to belong in America? Is it like Costco, where you have to have a membership card to reap the in-store benefits? Or is it knowledge of how the group functions that's important, like how some Facebook groups quiz you on the group rules before you're allowed to join? Or do you belong simply by being present, like in Tacoma Park, Maryland? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Hi, I'm Kate Stewart, the mayor in the city of Tacoma Park, Maryland. Tacoma Park has allowed non-citizens to vote since 1993. Yeah, it was. it's something um, we probably don't talk about enough, um, quite frankly, to make sure people are aware um, that non-citizens can vote in our community. Um, I do know uh, one of the first times I ran for election, uh, when I was door knocking and letting people know, you know, a number of people would be like, oh, I can't vote because I'm, you know, I live, you know, my, my citizenship is not in the U.S. or I'm here on a green card or I'm other things. And we could say like, oh, no, actually, you can vote here in the city. And it's very easy to register. Um, and people are very glad to hear that. To vote in Tacoma Park elections, all you have to do is prove you live there. Even undocumented immigrants can vote. Tacoma Park is small, with around 18,000 people in a two and a half mile radius. It's politically progressive and very diverse. Our black and brown residents are a majority, and we have over a third of residents in our city who are born outside the United States. So Tacoma Park's decision to let all those immigrants vote was a big deal. Tacoma Park is living on the edge. She means that literally, too. The town is shaped like a W, so it shares a lot of borders with other counties and with the District of Columbia. We live on the doorstep of our nation's capital, and so... Um, yeah, we're, we're on the edge of many things here in the city. Tacoma Park does not ask its immigrant residents whether or not they're in the U.S. legally. But the city has tracked voter turnout for non-citizens. And the rate is on par, sometimes a bit lower, than overall turnout in citywide races. 
in individual council districts, non-citizen voters have swayed some outcomes. But Stewart says there is no animosity over that. Allowing non-citizens to vote is part of Tacoma Park's core identity. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's part of not just being a diverse community, but making sure that we're uh, an inclusive and welcoming community to everyone who lives here. What difference does it really make if non-citizens can vote? I think it makes a huge difference um, in terms of holding elected officials accountable. I think the thing is we've had a city, we've had city representatives who have been um, very responsive to the needs of um, our immigrant community, but you you might get somebody elected who who wasn't and or who didn't you know pay attention or put in place programs or provide assistance um, and maybe they do need to be held accountable um, by certain groups of residents and enabling um, our non-citizen residents to do that is really important because you know everyone who lives in the community I think should have a voice in how their government is run. So voting then, in your mind, should be a privilege of residency or a right of residency. It's a right. It's not a privilege. Voting is a right. It's, it's, it is a, it's a basic right. That, that shouldn't be tied to whether or not you have officially taken a, an oath of loyalty. No, it should be tied to, are you living in that community? Are, are the, the rules and policies that are being um, put in place by officials impacting your your life and your family's life. Are you worried that they that non-citizens a non-citizen who's lived there for, you know, 45 days or whatever, just a couple of months, maybe just come from another country, maybe still learning English even, are they are they even qualified? Are they informed enough? to be able to vote. I, I, I really think it's a dangerous, dangerous place to go because I could say, I think somebody, I, I could say the same thing about somebody who's lived here all their life um, and is 50 years old. And sometimes, you know, they may not actually know all the issues um, just because somebody has only lived here um, a few weeks and uh, maybe an English learner is no reason to say whether or not they're qualified or unqualified to vote for elected officials. Do you have any concern that by allowing non-citizens to vote, they may have less of an incentive to go through the process to become a citizen? Absolutely not. I think it's the exact opposite. I think by valuing and expressing um, and welcoming them into our communities um, as equal, you know, as saying like you are like a resident now, and here is both the right and responsibility to participate in our community actually makes people want to become citizens even more by excluding them from things. We're, we're, we're basically saying you are, you're not equal. You are not a part of this. And, and who wants to join a group that they are already being told they're separate from? That is Mayor Kate Stewart. Tacoma Park has faced little resistance to its voting laws over the years. An effort to ban non-citizen voting at the state level in Maryland a decade ago failed to clear the legislature. And recently, a few other cities have joined the ranks of Maryland's 11 cities that allow non-citizens to vote. Starting in 2022, residents of Winooski and Montpelier in Vermont can cast a ballot in local elections regardless of citizenship status. And there's New York City, of course, which is facing a legal challenge. Internationally, the norm is still to require people have citizenship in order to vote. But things are shifting, says San Francisco State University scholar Ron Hadig, who we heard from earlier. It's become much more common in the last 40 years. He says migration and globalization have made it more routine for people to live in countries where they're not citizens. So ideas around what it means to belong are in flux. I've documented uh, 45 countries at, at least uh, allow immigrants to vote in uh, local, regional, or sometimes even national elections. Which country allows non-citizens to vote in a national election? So for like prime minister or president or for legislatures? Ireland uh, and uh, New Zealand, Australia, and all of the European Union allows uh, me- its member states to vote in uh, each other's elections. So, for example, if someone from Italy moves to France and lives in France, 
that Italian can vote in uh, French elections. Um, Ireland has been allowing this prior to that period of time and allows people to vote in federal elections after six months. Part of that is because Ireland had a very long um, fabled history of people emigrating from Ireland to other countries. Um, and so they have had the experience of being an immigrant in other countries, uh, you know, having left Ireland in the potato famine in the 1840s and 50s, coming to the United States and other places. Um, and so they've been more sympathetic to <laughs> immigrants that come to Ireland. The formation of the European Union in the 1990s started this recent wave of non-citizen voting, says Haydick. The other big trend has been among countries in Latin America, Africa, and the Caribbean, embracing non-citizen voting as they have transitioned from colonial or dictator rule into democracies. Trinidad and Tobago, the Dominican Republic, Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela are examples. As, as globalization has really uh, made the world closer uh, in terms of, you know, the flow of goods and services, information, and human beings, um, these norms have transferred as well. And that's one of the reasons why some scholars say there has been a growth in immigrant voting is that these norms have traveled as well. That's partly what has pushed immigrant voting to the fore, or at least allowed advocates uh, of immigrant voting to hang their hats, so to speak, on the logic of democracy to make their case for immigrant voting. So these countries that do allow non-citizens to vote, um, first of all, do they get a lot of non-citizens actually voting? The research um, does show that uh, in many cases, immigrants vote at comparable rates to their citizen neighbors. So for example, Carl Vernby in Sweden did a study showing that um, immigrants participated at uh, rates comparable to citizens, uh, that the um, voting by non-citizens prior to citizenship increased the propensity of immigrants to naturalize. Um, this was particularly true for immigrants from poorer countries. Wait, it made them, it made them more likely to become full citizens. Right. A number of studies show, say, for example, in Norway, and, and the same is true in the United States, that um, immigrants th that have experienced voting before citizenship are more likely to um, not only become citizens, but to become uh, active in electoral contests. They participate in other elections subsequent to their being able to vote in local elections. Does non-citizen voting result in different kinds of leaders getting elected? Yes. There's a number of studies that show uh, non-citizen voting can uh, correspond to, is correlated with the increase in representatives from minority or, or uh, more diverse racial ethnic backgrounds. New York City, for example, uh, when it allowed immigrants to vote in the community school board elections. The school boards were among the most diverse uh, bodies in terms of racial and ethnic diversity of all New York City uh, electoral bodies, including the city council especially. And those New York City school board elections are also a good example of how non-citizen voting can influence the policies and priorities of local communities. For example, in Washington Heights, uh, a section of northern Manhattan, uh, the largely Dominican community mobilized, registered 10,000 parents, uh, elected representatives uh, of Dominican background and other diverse uh, immigrant groups at the time and African-Americans. And they were able to uh, change some of the school policy. They were successful as well as in other districts to lobby for and advocate for uh, English language programs for greater uh, language access to uh, English language learners. Um, they were able to uh, get more funding for after-school programs. They were able to eventually get more funding like to the tune of $5 billion uh, over time to build new schools. But the fact that non-citizens could sway the outcome can itself become an issue of debate in an election. So it can, in fact, also trigger 
opposition to um, immigrants or immigrant uh, issues. As an example, when Greece attempted to let non-citizens vote recently, the effort ended up adding fuel to a wave of anti-immigrant sentiment sweeping through the country's politics. Haydick says non-citizen voting can also be perceived as a threat by minority groups that have citizenship. They've had to fight to belong and may worry about losing what influence they do have. We saw this recently in the debate over New York City's new law. For example, there were a couple of uh, African-American representatives, city council members, who objected that immigrant voting would dilute the power of African-Americans to select representatives of their choosing, uh, and that African-Americans sort of toehold in the political um, system has, uh, you know, is tentative and is important, and especially during this time, and that um, they are wary of immigrant voting and, in fact, uh, opposed it. On this bill, I vote no. This is Lori Cumbo, who was New York City Council Majority Leader at the time of the vote. And my concern, again, is how the African-American community will fare in a situation where our numbers are not amplified in any meaningful way. Does allowing non-citizens to vote increase the risk of voter fraud? And the way I'm thinking about this is if you allow, if you're a city that allows non-citizens to vote in local elections, doesn't that increase the chances that one of those non-citizens will go into the ballot box and maybe accidentally get also get the ballot for Congress or for president and cast a vote, maybe not, you know, intending to do anything wrong. That is a very clear objection and concern, not just on the part of opponents. Uh, Pro-immigrant advocates, uh, immigration attorneys have raised that concern um, because there are uh, some examples, they're super uh, infinitesimally small. They're super rare. But if a non-citizen votes in an election for Congress or president, that's a federal crime. And the person could be deported or stripped of their right to naturalize, even if they voted accidentally. Are there alternatives to voting that could give non-citizens just as much influence, just as much belonging in our communities? Well, there's certainly lots of ways that immigrants can participate in the political process besides voting. So immigrants can uh, help other people get registered, uh, learn about the candidates. Um, they can knock on doors, uh, try to get out the vote, um, get their family members to participate or their neighbors. Um, uh, there's certainly lots of uh, avenues for people to express their political views and be involved in uh, the political process besides voting. Of course, in shaping the outcomes of elections, um, voting is, uh, you know, obviously the tried and true mechanism and a significant power in determining who actually wins. So if nothing can substitute for the ability to cast a ballot, what we're left with is some tough questions. Who's a real stakeholder, right? Who is a, a real legitimate member of a community and what rights should those members have? Is citizenship the means by which we determine membership uh, or is it something else? The, the frame that may be more familiar to your listeners is the human rights framework, right? That by virtue of uh, human being a human being, you are... Uh, granted certain inalienable rights, to use the phrase from the Declaration of Independence. Does having the fortune to be born in America or the timing and resources to become a citizen really make someone best qualified to determine how our communities should operate? You know, this this question that, you know, maybe immigrants don't know enough to, uh, to participate uh, in elections. Um, you know, I, I moved from New York City to San Francisco and could vote 25 days after I arrived for people I never heard of and offices that I'd never heard of. And uh, and the, the idea that immigrants need to need time to learn uh, that they're not really quite ready to exercise this right. You know, it struck me as uh, similar to arguments made by opponents of enfranchising women or African-Americans, you know, that they are they're not ready. They're, they're not quite capable. Um, you know, sort of smacked of uh, the the arguments that were a little paternalistic, that they need more education. 
They need time to acculturate. Haydick has talked to people on all sides of this issue all around the world. And he says time and time again. I'm struck by how people feel like the vote uh, matters, that that the that politics is important, that uh, that people have strong passions about uh What's the proper role of government? Who should be in the government? What direction should government be going? And to the extent that people have strong views, the question of who votes and who's going to shape the direction of uh, that business um, matters. If so many of us feel strongly about how our government runs, what does it mean when we have a voice and we don't use it? I have thought um, many times about the non-voters. You know, 2020, we had the highest voter turnout in the United States since 1904. Um, it was 66%. But think about that. That's one third of the eligible electorate that did not vote in our highest turnout election in the 20th century, 21st century. Um, compared to other countries, the United States has woefully low voter participation. And this is especially true in state and local elections. I would think that just on a practical level, it it would be very difficult for you to personally justify not going to the, not showing up to vote. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually very proud of the fact that I don't think I've missed an opportunity to vote since I was 18, which, I mean, I did vote when I was 18. And that was, yeah, it's, I've always felt a civic duty. I think that's from my parents and grandparents, you know, that were immigrants and that valued the their membership and were proud of their heritage. And uh, my father was in the U.S. Air Force, you know, 26 years. So uh, it was kind of part of my duty. <laughs> I won't ask if you've missed a chance to vote in an election. That's a question that might sting a bit. Plus, we aren't one of those countries that requires people to vote, like Australia or Belgium. Here, voting is a choice. But if not everyone gets that choice, what responsibility rests on the shoulders of those who have it? Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Cleon Wall and Keeley Gibson, with help from me and Ciara Hewlett. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschusel, Jacob Malaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. We'd love to have you subscribe and leave a comment or review wherever you listen to the podcast. That'll help other people find us. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.